core stories, ordinary Marines, extraordinary lives. Hey everybody. This week we have another extraordinary guest. Robert Hall was an infantry Marine during Vietnam. And then he went on to serve his country as a state senator in central Massachusetts for five terms in a row. These days, he completes oral histories for the VA. He's completed over 300 oral histories, all while significantly compromised with respect to health. He is a true inspiration and he is such a great example of the ordinary heroism in average Marines. Anyway, enjoy and I'll catch you on the other side. How are you feeling? I'm feeling okay. I mean, it's been a struggle since I had this second lung removed, you know, and, and I feel weak and tired a lot, but I'm still working part-time at the doing interviews for my life, my story at the VA and, and uh, managing to get around, so. I love it, I love it. I want to get to, normally the outline for these podcasts, video podcasts are, how did we get to here? What is here and what is in the future? But I wanted to just take a minute to kind of do a little ho old home week visit with you because we sh also share not only Marine Corps historian research stuff, of course, you're a Vietnam Marine Corps veteran, combat veteran, but also you served in, in government, in uh, politics in central Massachusetts, where I lived for so long. We've lived in Wisconsin since 2002 with a oh. short stay in down in Illinois when I had a job there for five years. But we've had this condo in in, uh, in Madison, Wisconsin since 2004. I want you to talk to me about doing these oral histories, how you came to do it and what's it like? Sure. I had I was managing associations fairly successfully for 31 years. And in 2006, I was diagnosed with early interstitial fibrosis, that is pulmonary fibrosis. <laughs> and the usual time from diagnosis to death with pulmonary fibrosis is three to five years. It kills more people every year than breast cancer, but breast cancer gets 80 times as much research funding because it's a much more political disease. Uh, pulmonary fibrosis is an equal opportunity killer. So I chucked along, I'm still managing associations. In fact, I got my job at Illinois after that. And I like to think I did a good job for my last two associations. I was with five years and membership was up 80%. And, uh, and I put a significant millions of dollars in the bank and new reserves. So they did okay while I was there. But in, uh, then in 2010, I had to go on oxygen uh, because my breathing had deteriorated. Pulmonary fibrosis goes steadily downhill and doesn't come back. So I went on oxygen and for my last three and a half years of work, I pulled an oxygen tank behind me to work and the meetings and so forth and still managed to, I think, successfully run the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. Finally, in 13, it took another big step down and I was on 10 liters of oxygen just to walk into the building and 
I knew that I had to give it up. So I put in my retirement papers for November 30th and they started a search to replace me. And they found a guy that replaced me who's done a simply a wonderful job. Mike Zarthke's taken, uh, bringing some stuff to the table I didn't bring in. He's taken the association to new heights. So I'm very happy about that. And then on, uh, so my last day in the office was October 31st. So I was technically on the payroll as his advisor to um, until November 30th when I, my time was up. In the meantime, I, I had switched my care to the VA. And so in, in January of that year, and then, so I retired, I came home on October 2nd. And on October 3rd, the VA reevaluated me and put me on the top of the transplant list because my resting oxygen was below what they considered acceptable, even when I wasn't doing anything. So I waited on the transplant list, going to rehab and so forth, and made some good friends in the rehab. Uh, um, made friends with a black Marine called John, named John Payne, who got a lung five days before me, but died in 16. But we just went down to see his widow in, in March, the beginning of this pandemic. And so on uh, December 23rd, they put a new lung in me. Uh, my, they transplanted my right lung. With pulmonary fibrosis, you can live on one lung. So what happened is that I, um, I had a struggle for months to try to recover. In, in May, they thought I was going to die. They put a, they, I, my oxygen level was down to 90% with 100% oxygen running. And they said, you can go on a breathing tube, but a lot of people don't come off it. I said, let's throw the dice. So they put a breathing tube in me. And six days on that Monday, on Memorial Day, and six days later, they took the breathing tube out. And the doctor, Dr. Miles, said that I'd handled it. I tolerated the breathing tube the being intubated better than any of the hundreds of patients he'd intubated over the years. And I said, well, I've been under pressure before. I'm a Marine, you know. And so from then, I started to get better. And by August, I was out of uh, off of oxygen. And I've been off of oxygen ever since. And um, in, uh, in 2017, in around February, I went to work part-time as a security guard four days a week, but they were giving me too many hours and I couldn't stop them from doing that because they needed people. So finally I quit and which got the message to them. And then this job came open at the VA. So I applied and after jumping through all the hoops, government employees, difficult, I got hired as a part-time writer editor in the My Life, My Story program. And since July of 17 until yesterday, I've done, I think, 352 interviews uh, of veterans and written their life stories. It's a wonderful job and I only work 20 hours a week. Of course, since the pandemic, I've been working from home. I call a veteran, I interview them by phone and record it and then I write their story and then I call them back and do a read back to them, you know, kind of thing. So it's, uh, and then they can make any changes they want or, out. Sometimes they take out the good stuff, but the, the funny stuff. But um, the veteran I interviewed, interviewed this week said the, they changed the name of his camp in, in Saudi because the Saudis got their panties in a twist. But he took that out and he said the Saudis got upset. So you have to honor the veteran's request. So it's been a lot of fun. I've interviewed people from all walks of life. I've interviewed people that spent time in prison. I've interviewed people that have PhDs or in big educational institutions. So everybody's different and everybody's unique. And every story is interesting, some more than others, of course. And a great many aren't, you know, combat veterans. 
I interviewed one woman who had one one month in the army, blew out her knee in basic training, was medical retired, and here she was. So, and all the way to people that had careers in the army and 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 are in the military and numerous medals. So, so it's been a really uh, interesting job for me. My life, my story now has its own podcast. I sent you the link, which I think you can put in the notes for it. Mostly my boss and my colleague reading, reading veteran stories. Sometimes veterans give us permission to share outside the VA. And in that case, we can put them on the webpage or we can read them to town halls or read them in a podcast like that. So it's been a great job. I love it. And I hope it can continue. We'll see how my health holds. Well, that's, you're so inspiring. We have a friend, Todd Radke. Oh yes, I know. Yeah, and he speaks so highly of you. And one thing he always says about you is that you're the most disciplined person he's ever met. And I have to say, it must be true because people who who have less mobility and less health interferences than you do, do less. And I wonder what inspires you to work so hard. Well, in on my 18th birthday in 1964, April 15th. I took the bus into Camden, New Jersey. I lived with my grandmother and she didn't have a car. And I went into the federal building and I signed up for the draft. And then I walked down the hall and I walked past the army, the Navy and the Air Force recruiter. And I walked into the Marine recruiter and the staff sergeant said, how can I help you son? And I said, where do I sign? So he probably thought I was running from the law, but I wasn't, you know. So he gave me the, you know, the little um, test to see if you're and fog a mirror, I guess, to, and I passed that with flying colors. So they signed me up in August, I went to Paris Island. And my drill instructors, the late Sergeant Ezekiel Owens Jr., one of my three black mentors in my life, Sergeant uh, uh, Michael Martin and Sergeant William Harris, they gave me, I was with them 11 weeks and they've been with me every day since. They gave me some precious gifts. They taught me to take responsibility for my actions. They taught me to focus on the mission and get the job done. And they gave me resiliency, tenacity, and self-discipline. And because of them, I've had a long, happy, and successful life. So I just participated in a, a project that called the Elder Veterans Project. I said, who you call an elder? But of course I am. And, and the woman was working on a PhD on resiliency in older veterans. And she had interviewed 45 veterans. And every one of them said serving in the military was a positive experience in their life. Well, that, there's no doubt that it changes you. You know, this work you're doing, these oral histories, you know, that's my that's my passion in life is telling the stories of Marines, especially unsung Marines, Marines who've not had enough press, but the world needs to know them. So for the last 18 years, Core Stories has been doing just that. And it is very interesting that no matter where they wind up in life, most Marines would say that they're a far better person than they would have been had they not joined the Marine Corps. Now, I do, I, I, I do, yes, I do think that many Marines, though, come to the Marine Corps with outstanding expectations for themselves. Right. And, and it's only uh, validated and improved that way. I have interviewed at least one guy that I consider an ex Marine. He was a real bum. But mostly uh, the Marines are. Uh, you know, you know, really a band of brothers, as we say. And you meet another Marine, you start talking to him, you automatically sort of give him the benefit of the doubt until he proves different. 
Well, that's true. And I've met, I call them Marines in uniform only. I've met a couple of those in my life too, but, but yes. And I, but I really applaud you for this. And now what is the, what is the plan for the future? Now, certainly, first of all, in the show notes, in the description of this podcast, I'm going to include links to everything you're doing because everybody in this audience will love what you're doing. There's no two ways about it. But well, it's hard to know at 74 and with my health problems, and in addition to the lung transplant almost seven years ago, in June, they took my other lung out, my old lung, because I had a fungal infection they couldn't get rid of. So I had another serious operation then, and it's been a little bit of a struggle since then. I, I've certainly lost, uh, I'm certainly tired, more tired, and I'm certainly uh, weaker, and, and my mobility is hampered, especially because I have osteoarthritis in my right hip and they can't replace my hip because I'm immune suppressed. So I also have to be very careful about this pandemic being immune suppressed at 74. I'm in the high risk category if I come down with this coronavirus. So I have to watch that. Uh, what does the future hold? I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'll tell you what my, I can go through my, my background if you'd like. Uh, when, when I went in the Marines, I wanted to go in the infantry and kill a commie for mommy. And the Marines looked at my GCT, which is like your military IQ, which was 144. And they sent me to electronic school. So I trained as a radio relay repairman. And uh, for a year in San Diego, I finished second in my class and picked up Lance Corporal. And then the Marines proceeded to send me to the 10th Marines at Camp Lejeune, an artillery outfit with no radio relay gear. Uh, difficult. So, I spent six months as a radio operator and a forward observer. And I finally decided that I needed to get back in my field. So I volunteered for Vietnam. When they told me they didn't have orders for me, I requested mass to see the regimental commander. And they found orders and he gave me another stripe. I guess he thought anybody that crazy deserved to be a corporal. So I went off to Vietnam, but I lucky I landed on Okinawa for a few months because they put me in a, in a comm support company to, so I could relearn radio relay. Then I went to the 26 Marines and I went down to Vietnam. And again, I was fortunate. We were at Quezon before the siege, so I, or before Tet. So I was I was in the village, the CAC unit, my last year, the Combined Action Company, my last month, rather, in Vietnam, out in the village of Quezon, five soldiers, 20 Marines, and 35 popular force Vietnamese troops. And uh, it was interesting, but it wasn't too hairy because because things were quiet at Quezon. I came home in September of 67 and Tet happened in 68. So I tell people they were scared to attack while I was there. So I came home, came back to Camp Lejeune and, and did radio read there. I was going to make a career of the Corps, but I came home convinced the war was screwed up because of the politicians. So I was going to go into politics and fix things. So instead of making a career of the Corps, I got out and went to college and majored in government at the University of Massachusetts. My parents were living in Massachusetts at the time. And I graduated in June of, uh, of uh, uh, 73. And uh, in November of 73, the same year, I defeated a Democratic incumbent by nine votes to win a Senate seat. I'm the, I was the first Republican since 1938 to win that seat. Nobody could believe it. And they thought I was only going to be a one-term wonder, but next time I was reelected by 10,000 votes. And, the time after that, I was nominated by both parties. And the time after that, I was unopposed. And in 82, I had a pretty weak opponent that I crushed. And uh, 80, rather. And then in 82, I decided not to run for re-election. 
So I served five terms in the state Senate and retired undefeated, never lost an election. Then I had to support myself. So I went to Florida, my parents were there. I was tired of the snow and, and became an association executive with the Florida Psychological Association. Uh, I met my wife in Tallahassee. She came to a Scottish dance class I was teaching. And so one thing led to another. And so we got married just before we left Tallahassee. And since then we were in North Carolina and central Pennsylvania and back in Southern New Jersey where I grew up. And then here in, um, here in Wisconsin uh, with a little sojourn in Chicago. So I had a 31 year career, pretty successful, I think in association management before I had to retire. So the other things I do is I have a political blog at Tartan Marine at blogspot.com. It's a fairly conservative blog, but usually I use it not to write stuff of my own, but just to post links to stories and articles and opinion pieces that I think are, might be of interest to people. And I have a relatively large mailing list and I read a great deal, particularly history. I just recently read two books about the Israeli-Arab wars, the, the Six Days of War about 1967 and the Yom Kippur War about 1973. <laughs> Pretty fascinating stuff. And I'm now reading a book of George Will's columns that are collected. I read, read novels too occasionally, but I particularly, I particularly like the science fiction novels of, of Tom Crabman, who writes military science fiction, retired Army Lieutenant Colonel and a terrific writer and plotter. So that's I, pretty much my life. I have been following your blog for on and off for many years. How long have you had your, your blog? It's really outstanding, actually. Well, I started it, in, I think, in 2008, right before the election, just to express my frustrations with what I saw happening. And uh, at first, the first several years, I used to aggregate all the different stories and articles in a long column and publish that you know, once a day. That just got to be too much trouble and too many people weren't reading it. So and now I publish each article individually on the blog and let them let people reading it pick and choose. I don't expect everybody's going to read everything on my blog. Uh, I don't read everything on my blog, but it gives them a chance. Once in a while, I publish something that I write myself. So I've had it. For, I also recommend books. Um, the list of books, mostly history and economics and politics, some fiction that I've read since 2009, takes up uh, like about 40 pages on a Word document. Well, well, that's a blimey. Well, listen, I. I really am honored to finally have an interview with you. Well, um, I appreciate the chance. And I, I also want to encourage listeners to just click down in the show notes to visit some of the work you're doing for the VA. You know, I think that that, that may be some of my favorite stuff that the VA does. Well, the program started in Madison. My boss, Thor Ringler, was hired to start the program walked into some guy's room and said, can I interview you? And the guy said, yes. And since then, it's spread to about 50 other VAs. Uh, and it's spread to a bunch of civilian hospitals, too. It's now sort of on hold because of this coronavirus thing. And you just can't wander into patient rooms anymore, you know, kind of thing. So we're doing everything by referral and by phone. But there's, nationwide, there's been over 5,000 interviews done of veterans, of which we did 3,000 here in Madison. So I think Thor and Seth is my other co-worker and he's full-time, I'm part-time and they really are the heart and soul of the program. I love this. I completely love it. I, I, um, 
little little curious to see if my VA is doing it. I'm going to have to look that up because I think it's it's wonderful. And it, it, these veterans who have very interesting stories, like you say, it doesn't really matter how long they were in. They right. they they could have a great story, nonetheless. Well, the the interviews are not just about their time in the military; they're about their whole lives. So I usually start out, where were you born? And I end up, how was your care been at the VA? And uh, sometimes I'll find an interesting or funny story to start with that I'll use and, or end with, or a good statement to end with, you know, but but uh, usually that's the format I follow. And, and I tell them to jump in when they have a story they want to tell. You get some very funny stories and very interesting stories. I had one inter guy I interviewed recently who said uh, he, he liked the interview so much he was going to have it displayed at his wake. And uh, during the interview, after after the military, he was a buyer for a mail order company. And he said, I bought all the women's underwear. I knew a lot about women's underwear. I thought that ought to create some laughter at the wake when they read that. I love it. I love it. I bet you do. Oh, Lordy, we could be here all day hearing what your favorite stories were from some of these interviews. Well, one of my favorite was I went to the home of a 95-year-old World War II Marine who made six landing in the Pacific. And he talked for three hours and 39 minutes. The usual interview is under an hour. His story came to 7,468 words, which is way too long to put in the records. But I cut it way down and I gave him the full version. So he had it for his family. It was a real piece of history. I love that. Oh my word, I love that so much. That's brilliant. That's wonderful. Well, I can I say that one because he gave us permission to share it. I would love that. I'm gonna, and if you don't mind, I'd like to include it in, in the the content of the podcast, if that's okay. And yeah. Right. Oh, listen, Robert, it's been wonderful. It's been a wonderful interview. And listen, can we catch up later? Maybe when you're feeling better, I feel certain you're going to recover. Maybe just a slow recovery from the lung surgery, but maybe, you know, maybe this time next year, you're going to be a whole new man. Well, I hope so. This luminectomy has knocked me down. And hope to get to the strength where then the pandemic's over. I go back and work at the VA. I'm not sure that I'd have the strength to do that now. I have no. the strength, the interviews from home because I can sort of do them at my own pace. I can do an interview and and rest and I can write it up and then call the guy. I love it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. But we want you to stay safe because you definitely are at risk. It's a it's a long illness, this, this virus. So yeah. it is, we want to keep you safe. But listen, yeah. much, much thanks to you and to Bonnie, who has taken such great care of you for so many years now through all of your health issues and all of your... Her job, but now she's teacher for our eight-year-old grandson. She, she's online for education and she, she's helping him try to stay up to speed in, eighth, in, in third grade. So, Yeah, the, our caregivers don't get enough. They don't get enough attention and they don't get enough credit, I don't think. So anyway, much love to Bonnie. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Robert. Talk to you later. Okay, bye. bye. I know that was short and sweet, but it was wonderful, right? I thought so. I find Robert Hall to be very inspiring. Follow him on his on his blog, Tartan Marine, a nod to his Scottish roots. And don't forget to hit subscribe. And we'll catch you next time. Core Stories, Ordinary Marines, Extraordinary Lives.